Chapter One of Volume Three of The Mysterious Island. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Halpert. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Translated by William Henry Giles Kingston. Volume Three. Chapter One. It was now two years and a half since the castaways from the balloon had been thrown on Lincoln Island, and during that period there had been no communications between them and their fellow creatures. Once the reporter had attempted to communicate with the inhabited world by confiding to a bird a letter which contained the secret of their situation, but that was a chance on which it was impossible to reckon seriously. Ayrton alone, under the circumstances which have been related, had come to join the little colony. Now, suddenly, on this day, the 17th of October, other men had unexpectedly appeared in sight of the island on that deserted sea. But there was no doubt about it. A vessel was there. But would she pass on, or would she put into port? In a few hours the colonists would definitely know what to expect. Cyrus Harding and Herbert, having immediately called Gideon Spilett, Pencroft, and Neb into the dining-room of Granite House, told them what had happened. Pencroft, seizing the telescope, rapidly swept the horizon, and stopping on the indicated point, that is to say, on that which had made the most imperceptible spot, on that photographic negative. I'm blessed! "'But it is really a vessel!' he exclaimed, in a voice which did not express any great amount of satisfaction. "'Is she coming here?' asked Gideon Spilett. "'Impossible to say anything yet,' answered Pencroft, "'for her rigging alone is above the horizon, and not a bit of her hull can be seen.' "'What is to be done?' asked the lad. "'Wait,' replied Harding, and for a considerable time the settlers remained silent.' given up to all the thoughts and the emotions and all the fears, all the hopes which were aroused by the incident, the most important which had occurred since their arrival in Lincoln Island. Certainly the colonists were not in the situation of castaways, abandoned on a sterile islet, constantly contending against a cruel nature for their miserable existence, and incessantly tormented by the longing to return to inhabited countries. Pencroft and Neb especially, who felt themselves at once so happy and so rich, would not have left their island without regret. They were accustomed, besides, to this new life in the midst of the domain which their intelligence had, as it were, civilized. But at any rate the ship brought news from the world, perhaps even from their native land. It was bringing fellow creatures to them, and it may be conceived how deeply their hearts were moved at the sight. From time to time, Pencroft took the glass and rested himself at the window. From thence, he very attentively examined the vessel, which was at a distance of twenty miles to the east. The colonists had, as yet, therefore, no means of signaling their presence. A flag would not have been perceived, a gun would not have been heard, a fire would not have been visible. However, it was certain that the island, overtopped by Mount Franklin, 
could not escape notice of the vessel's lookout. But why was the ship coming there? Was it a simple chance which brought it to that part of the Pacific, where the maps mentioned no land except Tabor Island, which itself was out of the route usually followed by vessels from the Polynesian archipelagos, from New Zealand, and from the American coast? To this question, which each one asked himself, a reply was suddenly made by Herbert. "'Can it be the Duncan?' he cried. The Duncan, as has been said, was Lord Glenarvan's yacht, which had left Ayrton on the islet, and which was to return there some day to fetch him. Now the islet was not so far distant from Lincoln Island, but that a vessel standing for one could pass in sight of the other. A hundred and fifty miles only separated them in longitude, and seventy in latitude. "'We must tell Ayrton,' said Gideon Spilett, and send for him immediately. He alone can say if it is the Duncan. This was the opinion of all, and the reporter going to the telegraphic apparatus which placed the corral in communications with Granite House, sent this telegram, Come with all possible speed. In a few minutes the bell sounded. I am coming, replied Ayrton. Then the settlers continued to watch the vessel. If it is the Duncan, said Herbert, Ayrton will recognize her without difficulty, since he sailed on board her for some time. And if he recognizes her, added Pencroft, it will agitate him exceedingly. Yes, answered Cyrus Harding, but now Ayrton is worthy to return on board the Duncan, and pray heaven that it is indeed Lord Glenarvan's yacht, for I should be suspicious of any other vessel. These are ill-famed seas, and I have always feared a visit from Malay pirates to our island. We could defend it, cried Herbert. No doubt, my boy, answered the engineer, smiling, but it would be better not to have to defend it. A useless observation, said Spilett. Lincoln Island is unknown to navigators, since it is not marked even on the most recent maps. Do you think, Cyrus, that this is a sufficient motive for a ship finding herself unexpectedly in sight of new land to try and visit rather than avoid it? Certainly, replied Pencroft. I think so too, added the engineer. It may even be said that it is the duty of a captain to come and survey any land or island not yet known, and Lincoln Island is in this position. Well, said Pencroft, Suppose this vessel comes and anchors there a few cable lengths from our island, what shall we do? The sudden question remained at first without any reply. But Cyrus Harding, after some moments' thought, replied in the calm tone which was usual to him, What shall we do, my friends? What we ought to do is this. We will communicate with the ship. We will take our passage aboard her, and we will leave our island after having taken possession of it in the name of the United States. Then we will return with any who may wish to follow us to colonize it definitely, and endow the American Republic with a useful station in this part of the Pacific Ocean. Hurrah! exclaimed Pencroft, and that will be no small present which we shall make to our country. The colonization is already almost finished. Names are given to every part of the island. There is a natural port, fresh water, roads, 
a telegraph, a dockyard, and manufactories, and there is nothing to be done but to inscribe Lincoln Island on the maps. But if anyone seizes it in our absence, observed Gideon Spilett, Hang it, cried the sailor. I would rather remain all alone to guard it, and trust to Pencroft if they should steal it from him, like a watch from the pocket of a swell. For an hour it was impossible to say with any certainty whether the vessel was or was not standing towards Lincoln Island. She was nearer, but in what direction was she sailing? This Pencroft could not determine. However, as the wind was blowing from the northeast, in all probability the vessel was sailing on a starboard tack. Besides, the wind was favorable for bringing her towards the island, and the sea being calm, she would not be afraid to approach, although the shallows were not marked on the chart. Towards four o'clock, an hour after he had been sent for, Ayrton arrived at Granite House. He entered the dining-room, saying, "'At your service, gentlemen.' Cyrus Harding gave him his hand, as was his custom to do, and leading him to the window. "'Ayrton,' said he, "'we have begged you to come here for an important reason. A ship is in sight of the island.' Ayrton at first paled slightly, and for a moment his eyes became dim. Then, leaning out the window, he surveyed the horizon, but could see nothing. Take the telescope, said Spilett, and look carefully, Ayrton, for it is possible that this ship may be the Duncan, come to these seas for the purpose of taking you home. The Duncan, murmured Ayrton, already? The last word escaped Ayrton's lips, as if involuntarily, and his head drooped upon his hands. Did not twelve years of solitude on a desert island appear to him a sufficient expiation? Did not the penitent yet feel himself pardoned, either in his own eyes or in the eyes of others? No, said he, no, it cannot be the Duncan. Look, Ayrton, said the engineer, for it is necessary that we should know beforehand what to expect. Ayrton took the glass and pointed it in the direction indicated. During some minutes he examined the horizon without moving, without uttering a word, then... It is indeed a vessel, said he, but I do not think she is the Duncan. Why do you not think so? asked Gideon Spilett. Because the Duncan is a steam yacht, and I cannot perceive any trace of smoke either above or near the vessel. Perhaps she is simply sailing, observed Pencroft. The wind is favorable for the direction which she appears to be taking, and she may be anxious to economize her coal being so far from land. It is possible that you are right, Mr. Pencroft, answered Ayrton, and that the vessel has extinguished her fires, but we must wait until she is nearer, and then we shall soon know what to expect. So saying, Ayrton sat down in the corner of the room and remained silent. The colonists again discussed the strange ship, but Ayrton took no part in the conversation. All were in such a mood that they found it impossible to continue their work. Gideon Spilett and Pencroft were particularly nervous, going, coming, not able to remain still in one place. Herbert felt more curiosity. Neb alone maintained his usual calm manner. Was not his country that where his master was? As to the engineer, he remained plunged in deep thought. 
for in his heart he feared rather than desired the arrival of the ship. In the meanwhile the vessel was a little nearer the island. With the aid of the glass it was ascertained that she was a brig, and not one of the Malay proas, which are generally used by pirates in the Pacific. It was therefore reasonable to believe that the engineer's apprehensions would not be justified, and that the presence of the vessel in the vicinity of the island was fraught with no danger. Pencroft, after a minute examination, was able positively to affirm that the vessel was rigged as a brig, and that she was standing obliquely towards the coast, on the starboard tack under her topsails and topgallant sails. This was confirmed by Ayrton. But by continuing in this direction, she must soon disappear behind Claw Cape, as the wind was from the southwest, and to watch her it would be necessary to ascend the height of Washington Bay, near Port Balloon, a provoking circumstance, for it was already five o'clock in the evening, and the twilight would soon make any observation extremely difficult. "'What shall we do when night comes on?' asked Gideon Spilett. "'Shall we light a fire so as to signal our presence on the coast?' This was a serious question, and yet, although the engineer still retained some of his presentiments, it was answered in the affirmative. During the night, the ship might disappear and leave forever. And this ship gone, would another ever return to the waters of Lincoln Island? Who could foresee what the future would then have in store for the colonists? Yes, said the reporter, we ought to make known to that vessel, whoever she may be, that the island is inhabited. To neglect the opportunity which is offered to us might be to create everlasting regrets. It was therefore decided that Neb and Pencroft should go to Port Balloon, and that there at nightfall they should light an immense fire, the blaze of which would necessarily attract the attention of the brig. But at the moment when Neb and the sailor were preparing to leave Granite House, the vessel suddenly altered her course and stood directly for Union Bay. The brig was a good sailor, for she approached rapidly. Neb and Pencroft put off their departure, therefore, and the glass was put into Ayrton's hands, that he might ascertain for certain whether the ship was or was not the Duncan. The Scotch yacht was also rigged as a brig. The question was whether a chimney could be discerned between the two masts of the vessel, which was now at a distance of only five miles. The horizon was still very clear, the examination was easy, and Ayrton soon let the glass fall again, saying, It is not the Duncan, it could not be. Pencroft again brought the brig within range of the telescope, and could see that she was of between three and four hundred tons burden, wonderfully narrow, well-masted, admirably built, and must be a very rapid sailor. And to what nation did she belong? That was difficult to say. And yet, added the sailor, a flag is floating from her peak, but I cannot distinguish the colors of it. In a half hour we shall be certain about that, answered the reporter. Besides, it is very evident that the intention of the captain of this ship is to land, and consequently, if not today, tomorrow at the latest, we shall make his acquaintance. Never mind, said Pencroft, it is best to know whom we have to deal with, and I shall not be sorry to recognize the fellow's colors. And while thus speaking, the sailor never left the glass. The day began to fade, and with the day the breeze fell also. 
The brig's ensign hung in folds, and it became more and more difficult to observe it. It is not an American flag, said Pencroft from time to time, nor the English, the red of which could be easily seen, nor the French or German colors, nor the white flag of Russia, nor the yellow of Spain. One would say it was all one color. Let's see, in these seas, what do we generally meet with? The Chilean flag? But that is tricolor. Brazilian? It is green. Japanese? It is yellow and black, while this... At that moment, the breeze blew out the unknown flag. Ayrton, seizing the telescope which the sailor had put down, put it to his eye, and in a hoarse voice, The black flag! he exclaimed. And indeed the somber bunting was floating from the mast of the brig. And they had now good reason for considering her to be a suspicious vessel. Had the engineer then been right in his presentiments? Was this a pirate vessel? Did she scour the Pacific, competing with the Malay proas, which still infest it? For what had she come to look at the shores of Lincoln Island? Was it to them an unknown island, ready to become a magazine for stolen cargoes? Had she come to find on the coast a sheltered port for the winter months? Was the settler's honest domain destined to be transformed into an infamous refuge, the headquarters of the piracy of the Pacific? All these ideas instinctively presented themselves to the colonists' imaginations. There was no doubt, besides, of the significance which must be attached to the color of the hoisted flag. It was that of pirates. It was that which the Duncan would have carried, had the convicts succeeded in their criminal design. No time was lost before discussing it. My friends, said Cyrus Harding, perhaps this vessel only wishes to survey the coast of the island. Perhaps her crew will not land. There is a chance of it. However that may be, we ought to do everything we can to hide our presence here. The windmill on Prospect Heights is too easily seen. Let Ayrton and Neb go and take down the sails. We must also conceal the windows of Granite House with thick branches. All the fires must be extinguished, so that nothing may betray the presence of men on the island. And our vessel, said Herbert, Oh, answered Pencroft, she is sheltered in Port Balloon, and I defy any of those rascals there to find her. The engineer's orders were immediately executed. Neb and Ayrton ascended the plateau and took the necessary precautions to conceal any indication of a settlement. While they were thus occupied, their companions went to the border of Jacamar Wood and brought back a large quantity of branches and creepers, which would at some distance appear as natural foliage, and thus disguise the windows in the granite cliff. At the same time the ammunition and guns were placed ready, so as to be at hand in case of an unexpected attack, when all these precautions had been taken. My friend, said Harding, and his voice betrayed some emotion, if the wretches endeavor to seize Lincoln Island, we shall defend it, shall we not? Yes, Cyrus, replied the reporter, and if necessary we will die to defend it. The engineer extended his hand to his companions, who pressed warmly. Ayrton remained in his corner, not joining the colonists. Perhaps he, the former convict, still felt unworthy to do so. Cyrus Harding understood what was passing in Ayrton's mind, and going to him, And you, Ayrton, what will you do? My duty, answered Ayrton. 
He then took up his station near the window and gazed through the foliage. It was now half-past seven, and the sun had disappeared twenty minutes ago behind the granite house. Consequently, the eastern horizon was becoming obscured. In the meantime, the brig continued to advance towards Union Bay. She was now not more than two miles off, and exactly the opposite of Prospect Heights, for after having tacked off Claw Cape, she had drifted towards the north in the current of the rising tide. One might have said that at this distance she had already entered the vast bay, for a straight line drawn from Claw Cape to Cape Mandible would have rested on her starboard quarter. Was the brig about to penetrate far into the bay? That was the first question. When once in the bay, would she anchor there? That was the second. Would she not content herself with only surveying the coast and stand out to sea again without landing her crew? They would know this in an hour. The colonists could do nothing but wait. Cyrus Harding had not seen the suspected vessel hoist the black flag without deep anxiety. Was it not a direct menace against the work which he and his companions had till now conducted so successfully? Had these pirates, for the sailors of the brig could be nothing else, already visited the island since on approaching it they had hoisted their colors? Had they formally invaded it so that certain unaccountable peculiarities might be explained in this way? Did there exist in the as yet unexplored parts some accomplice ready to enter into communications with them? To all these questions which he mentally asked himself, Harding knew not what to reply, but he felt that the safety of the colony could not but be seriously threatened by the arrival of the brig. However, he and his companions were determined to fight to the last gasp. It would have been very important to know if the pirates were numerous and better armed than the colonists, but how was this information to be obtained? Night fell. The new moon had disappeared. Profound darkness enveloped the island and the sea. No light could pierce through the heavy piles of clouds and on the horizon. The wind had died away completely with the twilight. Not a leaf rustled on the trees, not a ripple murmured on the shore. Nothing could be seen of the ship, all her lights being extinguished. And if she was still in sight of the island, her whereabouts could not be discovered. Well, who knows, said Pencroft. Perhaps that cursed craft will stand off during the night, and we shall see nothing of her at daybreak. As if in reply to the sailor's observation, a bright light flashed in the darkness, and a cannon-shot was heard. The vessel was still there, and had guns on board. Six seconds elapsed between the flash and the report. Therefore the brig was about a mile and a quarter from the coast. At the same time the chains were heard rattling through the house holes. The vessel had just anchored in sight of Granite House. End of Volume 3, Chapter 1 Recording by Don Halpert The only Don Halpert at gmail.com